Ruth chapter 4, verses 13 through 22. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be, the, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Aminadab fathered Nation. Nation fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. All right, thanks again, Marin. Good morning, guys. Welcome to Hiawatha. Welcome back to uh, most of you. If you're a visitor today, welcome. I'm uh, glad you guys are joining us. Uh, super glad to see you guys. Uh, we've been, I think Spence said this, but longing for, deeply longing for this day for about three months being here. Uh, love, love the guys, but we also just needed you all. It was just not the same uh, being here uh, in a lot of ways. So, uh, but this is great. Um, we are going to finish Ruth today, so if you're just joining us, uh, for the first time, we've been in the book of Ruth for six weeks. We're going to finish that today. Kind of an odd passage, but a fun one that I hope uh, you'll enjoy as well and um, that it will mean more to you than uh, maybe uh, a surfacey reading, um, uh, you know, does. Uh, but we are um, going to finish it today. Today's sermon is called um, A Family Gospel Album. I'll explain that here in a second. But uh, if you are new to the book, Ruth is uh, so an, an actual woman who lived uh, thousands of years ago. She was a Moabite who was a widow. So she lost her husband uh, during a 10-year famine. Uh, he, she married an Israelite. And the, the book is basically about her traveling back to Israel with her mother-in-law named Naomi, who also lost a husband. Uh, and so her intent was just to start a new life with her, to, to help her, to serve her uh, in different ways, uh, and just to be with her. It was um, not uh, the best of deals in that day to be a, a, a widowed woman uh, without a way to provide for herself. And so uh, it was problematic, and so that the thought was uh, she, could, she could help her, and together that they would maybe be better, better off than alone. Um, but uh, who unwittingly, uh, speaking of Ruth now, finds love again in the arms of a man named Boaz. So, um, so though the book begins in an extremely depressing note in a lot of ways, it began with, in the days of the judges, uh, this, all this stuff happened. In the days of this famine, all this stuff happened. Uh, so it's, and the judges were, it was a tumultuous time for Israel, if you know the story of the judges. But Kind of, it started on that note, very depressing, kind of dark note, full of death and widowhood and um, famine and separation from the land that God was giving his people, and, and the list goes on. But it ends in a very high note, as we just heard. in last week, too, it, it has the feel of, uh, and they lived happily ever after uh, kind of uh, note. It, it's, uh, you know, Boaz and Ruth are happily married, and, and, and Ruth and Naomi are redeemed. We talked about that principle uh, last two weeks Naomi is holding her grandson, literally, here at the end of the book. And, and we even get this glimpse ahead into the story by linking Boaz and Ruth's genealogical line with David, uh, King David, who would come two generations later, and then ultimately Jesus. And so well, what we're talking about in this book is a lot of history, a lot of theology. We're, we're talking about a, a, a genealogy as well. 
Uh, the Bible's big on genealogies, a genealogical and theological lines that say something theological about who we are and who God is and what the gospel is. And so we're linking people like Boaz and Ruth with David and all of them with Jesus. And so what happens here in these stories then kind of speak to what Christ will be like and what his mission will be, his ultimate MO will be. And so I'll, I'll connect some of those dots here uh, today at the end. But if you've been joining us in this series, hopefully you've been, you've been seeing the book uh, do that as well. And so I'm calling the sermon a family gospel album because of, of those kinds of things. I, th- I think here at the end, it's very, th- this book is, it ends in a commemorative way of God's grace in so many ways, uh, especially as it looks to the future and makes us yearn for another version of these stories uh, to, to come to you all. Not unlike you might be watching a movie or reading a book and you have this thought, I wish I was a part of that world or it'd be so cool to be a part of that universe that this, uh, that this book and story is kind of, um, kind of portraying. Have you guys ever had that feeling before when you're reading a book like that? And like, it'd be cool to be alive with those kinds of creatures or where this type of goodness is overcoming this type of evil. Well, with the Bible, the cool thing is that's actually true. Like we're a part of this same world that Ruth and Boaz inhabited, the same planet, the same story, uh, the same gospel really that, that envelops uh, it all and the same God who saves sinners uh, like, like them and like us. All right, so let's look at uh, Ruth the woman today uh, one last time uh, from three thematic angles as well as some other B-level and secondary characters here in the story, and, and I'll show you more about uh, what I mean here and more importantly what I think uh, God wants us to see. The first is Ruth the foreigner. All right, so this has come up a little bit in the earlier part of the series, but But Ruth's inclusion here in the bloodline of Jesus, so we talked about this a second ago, but Ruth's inclusion here in the the genealogical and theological bloodline of Jesus tells us that Jesus' eventual arrival will be for all people, not just the people of Israel. So it goes beyond the physical to the the global and and beyond the national to the global and the physical to to the spiritual. This is huge to see this. it's, it's not only does it speak to God's global focus, even way back here in, in the earlier parts of the Bible, but it reminds us of this more specific truth that like non-Jews were kind of grafted into the vine of the people of God, so more broadly speaking were sinners grafted into the vine of Christ. That's from Jesus' words in John 15. Paul talks about that in Romans 11. This idea of being an alien branch to the vine of life, but God grafts us in. He, we're, we're distant. We're not like God. We're not like his son. We're, we're sinners. We've been diseased. And that he grafts us in so he can draw life from uh, the, the very uh, son of God himself through his death and, and resurrection. And so these short verses are so important. Easy to read over, but the fact that Ruth was a Moabite, I mean, most of, most of us, if not all of us in the room, are not like Jewish people. And so, but even if we were, the Bible, the Bible is saying it's not about ethnicity. It, it's, it's not about blood. It, Paul even says in Romans 9, I think it is, to be a Jew is to be one inwardly. To truly be Jewish, to truly be an Israelite is a spiritual matter. In other words, to truly be a person of God is to have faith. It, it is to, to be a son of a, or a daughter of Abraham is to be a person of faith like he was back in Genesis 12. It is a, not a physical thing, though those physical things can help tell the story, Right? This is what we're talking about. They're so important because they, they imply acceptance. They, they, these things imply that God is drawing spiritual foreigners near and that God's kingdom is for all who believe and repent. And as we said before in this series, 
A marriage is what grafted Ruth in, right? She, was, she became an Israelite, in a sense, by way of love and marriage, not by the works of her hands, not by what she did, but because she was loved. And it's the, it's the same with us as Christians. We're saved and accepted, given the hope of eternal life, forgiven based on Jesus' loving death, which is kind of a marital-like death. He was the bridegroom, not on performance, right? So that's the first layer to this, is grafted in my marriage, not works. The second is, if we dig a bit deeper, this also means that David, who is Ruth's great-grandson, had some Moabite blood in him too, right? Isn't that interesting? It's not something we always think about when we think about David, uh, but the greatest king of Israel, this one, this special king that God was, was saying, I'm, I'm promising to bring someone through you who would rule forever in a perfect way, speaking of Jesus. But this king also had not like Gentile Moabite blood, blood in him. And so when we apply this whole idea to, to Jesus then, who was like the second David, another way to look at it would be to say that Jesus not only came to save foreigners, but that he took on that aspect of who we are in in a very literal sense. To save us and to take on our human, by taking on our human nature. So think of like skin and bone and marrow and organ and spirit and soul and mind and heart. Christ took on, the Son of God took on these things, right? He became these things so he could save us. He became Moabite in that sense of the word. He became human in order to save us. It's, it's kind of like that half-blood type idea. The, the Israel-foreigner mix is reminiscent of the greater idea that Jesus is both human and, and, and divine. Hebrews 2 says this in the New Testament. This is the same idea, but in um, just New Testament explicit terms. Since therefore the children, speaking of us, the, the human beings, we share in flesh and blood, right? We're, we have bodies, we have flesh and blood, we are cre- we're creatures. God made us in this way with bodies and souls and spirits and minds and hearts. Since therefore we share in flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of Jesus, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil, that he might atone for the sins of the people. And so, so again, Ruth's like dual citizenship here, being Moabite but also Israelite, is a glimpse of the coming incarnation of God into human flesh. It's a whisper to us that one day a true bridge builder between God and sinners would be born. In this line, in this kind of dual citizenship thematic line, one would come who would be both God and human. That's that dual citizenship idea. God and human and would by his very nature, bridge build, but more than his nature, by his actions, by dying on, our, on, our, on a cross for, uh, for our sin. And so I think this is, this is not only a true and a, and a beautiful idea to think about how God is coming to us to rescue us. It's mystical. It's hard to understand this on some level, but it is very important for Christian theology and for us because it's distinctly Christian and it, it centers on grace. Other religions say things like, try hard to become what you're not to appease God, right? Try hard to become what you're not to appease God. But Christianity says, God became what you are to save you. Do you see the difference? Other religions say, become like God. Try hard to become like him. Become a better version of yourself. 
But Christianity says God became like us in order to save us. It's one of the many reasons why this doctrine is so important. The virgin birth, like we need that one. Christianity hangs on on that one and many others because the gospel is at stake. If Jesus was just a man or just God, it implies distance still between us and God. That we, it implies that we need to climb the mountain uh, ourselves rather than it being ascended for us in our place um, by the God-man uh, who, did, who did so lovingly, willingly, and gloriously 2,000 years ago when he climbed Calvary with that cross on his back. All right, the second uh, part here is Ruth the barren. So this is, this is something that's easy to miss in the story because it's kind of in the white space of Ruth, but Ruth was likely barren for the previous 10 years up to this point. Uh, she was childless and was married uh, during the 10-year famine in Moab, or in, in Israel, when they were in Moab. So the fact that she came back to Israel with Naomi, childless, indicates uh, she was probably infertile. We don't know this for sure, but the vast majority of people uh, believe this is probably the case. And so, which is another reason, though, why this birth is so exciting, right? And such a reason to thank God. I mean, every time a child is born, it's reason to thank God. But this is, this is why the book is ending on this extremely high note. It's not just a birth. It's a birth after 10 years of famine and barrenness. Kind of similar themes, right? Famine and barrenness. Uh, no life in a womb or no life from the land or from the earth. Very similar idea. But this phrase here, the Lord gave her conception in verse 13. Just think about this for a second. That phrase is so rich. Uh, it, it, is, it means that the Lord allowed her to conceive, right? Every conception ever has been given, not produced. Uh, e- even back in the beginning, the first conception ever was when Eve conceived Cain. Do you remember that story from Genesis 4? And there, I don't have this on screen, but there uh, she says, with the help of the Lord, I've gotten a man. With the help of God, I conceived. With the help of God, I was able to do this. Not alone, but with the help of God, right? Uh, Conception was, was allowed for. So the Bible is a story of God overcoming barrenness, overcoming not having children, or overcoming um, uh, obstacles. Ruth is just one more example in a long line of these happening. Uh, if, if you know the book of Genesis, tons of barren women there. You have this, this theme brought up in the prophets about the world kind of being like Sarah, Abraham's wife, who's also barren. And how, I mean, lots of amazing layers there we don't have time for today. But Ruth is another glimpse into this idea that God is like, hitting the repeat button and like repeat that story because I want the reader and the world to see this is, this is what reality is. And this is who I am as one who overcomes. But here's what's interesting, even more interesting, I think, uh, when you add on this idea that it says a son has been born, not to Ruth, but to Naomi. Is that interesting? Like that's what they say, right? It's, even though it's not wrong to say Ruth uh, has had a son, has a son, but this says a son has been born to Naomi. So Naomi is another example of this idea of barrenness being overcome. She was a type of barren woman with two dead sons, without a redeemer, without husband, who God is now providing for. And, um, and this helps us, I think, understand something really important that I'm going to go kind of quick on this, but really important about the barrenness theme in the Bible, and that is barrenness goes beyond barrenness. Barrenness 
is about more than barrenness. Because Naomi wasn't barren technically, right? Naomi, but she was kind of figuratively because her sons died. So Naomi is, is a small reminder that what one person goes through physically can apply to all of us on a different level. So, yes, stories like this, are they hope for the infertile? Are they hope for the barren? Are there hope for couples that just can't get pregnant? I think so, definitely. But that's not the main point. That's a small hope compared to the, the greater hope of, of the gospel. And, so, and here's what the gospel is. The gospel is that we are spiritually like what Ruth was physically. We are spiritually barren. We're spiritually empty, dead, lifeless, all that. And without, without hope as we stare death in the face our, ourselves. Uh, Jesus talks in these terms a lot in the Gospels and in Revelation 3 when he says the church is like naked and blind and, and pitiable and poor, but speaking of that in spiritual terms. So the Bible has this category for understanding the physical plight of someone or a nation or a group or a family and saying that is like the world spiritually or that is like those people uh, spiritually speaking. And so that's what we need to do here. The gospel is we're spiritually barren. And it was only when Jesus came to be born of not just a barren woman, but a virgin, that he would be the one to, to break the cycle and save us from our dead and, and decaying hearts. All right, so very important to understand if, if you're a Christian. If you're not, this is great for you to understand as well as, as you kind of come to terms with what the gospel really is, um, is that the problem for Christians uh, this is how we should view the world. The problem as we see it is not just out there, but in here. That, that, that is a huge shift. Now, that's not to say that people are not Christians yet don't see that on some level, but there is a pretty big difference still that, that Christians see that the problem out there is not as bad as the one in here. There are a lot of problems out there in our city, in government, in the country, in the world injustices, evils, wickedness. It's, there is evil out there. But the other location of evil says that actually it's, it's right here. And so that means when we're talking about things like barrenness, when we look at someone or know someone who's struggling with barrenness or infertility, what the Bible is saying and encouraging us to see in that is the idea that that person is us. What they're going through is us. Whether we, you have kids or not, whether you're married or not, whether you're a woman or not, that's us. Think about how Paul says to men and women who are Christians in the New Testament, all of you are circumcised spiritually. And like, so if, if you're a woman in, that, in the first century in the Philippian church, you're like, oh, he must be talking spiritually, right? Has to be. It's the same here with this idea. Men, you're barren. Non-married people, you're barren. Families with kids, you're barren spiritually. That's what we need to see. That's the message. And so when we talk about this too with like oppression, like, you know, we could ask the question, are some people physically oppressed and some not? Definitely. But spiritual oppression is for all equally, and that's the level that Jesus operated on. He cared for some physically oppressed people, but he spoke to all about their spiritual oppression. And, and if we don't understand this, it's really hard to be truly Christian because we've lost the entirety of the message of Jesus and there's nothing to cling to in our fallenness uh, anymore. 
And so let me say it again from a, a slightly different angle. The, the theme of barrenness in the Bible is not saying care for the physically barren that you know, though that's good, and that, that might be like a secondary or tertiary thing that we draw from these passages. That's not what it's saying, though. What it's saying is that we are all barren. We are barren in our sin, and there's nothing we can do about it, but God can because God raises the dead. So if these stories are like a mirror to us, we'll cry out to God for help, right? We'll say, that person's like me spiritually. That'll lead us to do the, 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 the right kind of Christian spiritual uh, salvific thing of crying out to God for help and saying, God, I need you. But if evil's just out there still, if it's outside of us in the world, what's our response going to be? We'll just try to be fixers, right? We'll be doers. Like the, the lesson or the message if evil's just out there is, well, I guess we should just go f- try to fix that problem or care for people as they go through that problem, which again is not bad necessarily and that might be sort of indicative of what our lives look like obviously as Christians on some level, but that's not the ultimate way we view the world. It's not just out there, it's in here. If it's a mirror, we'll not just say, I love those of you who are going through difficult times and we want to show the love of God to them. We will say, I am them spiritually and we'll, and we'll cry out for, for help. All right, so the, the third uh, section here, guys, is Ruth, the descendant of Perez. All right, so this is from last week, uh, Ruth 4.12. Uh, the, this benediction over the family is, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And then from this week's passage, now these are, this is the genealogy of Perez. These, these are the generations of a man named Perez. Okay, so who is this Perez guy? He is, um, some of you might know who, who he is. I'm guessing a lot of you have forgotten or you just, you just don't know, and that's that's understandable because he only comes up in a few verses narratively in the Bible. And that's from Genesis 38. So I'm going to go back and read this. Um, we learn about him through an actually pretty weird and graphic birth narrative. Uh, so it's his birth narrative. So let me read verse, uh, four verses of this from Genesis 38. When the time of Tamar's labor came, they were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was Perez, was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread in his hand, and his name was called Zerah. All right, so very common birth story here, right? Like this always happens when, when twins are born. Not, not really. Um, but this is, this is odd, right? And this is something we, we have to be asking these questions. If you're a Christian, like it, it, is, it should be like in, in your interest to know this, right? Like why does the Bible talk in these terms? Why is this here? Why can't it just say Tamar had a son named Perez and that happened to be one of Jesus' ancestors? But it doesn't. It talks about this weird, odd birth narrative where his brother stuck out a hand, pulled it back after a cord is tied around it, and then Perez was born. Even though he was the younger, he was born first. All right, a couple of things here on why Perez at all in Ruth. Um, why Perez at all, but why this birth narrative? And I have two, two big things today. The first is <clears throat> Perez in this story 
was the unlikely one. Kind of like his, uh, David, his descendant, if you know his story, the guy who became king, I talked about him. Major theme in the Bible, by the way, that underscores grace, meaning it's not birthright, it's not birth order, it's not bloodline, it's not strength, it's not handsomeness, it's not beauty, it's not any other human, by any other human device that we're saved, but only by God's gracious choice and, and, and effort to save us by spending and suffering that we might be brought in. The New Testament counterpart to this idea would be when Paul says to the, the Corinthians in the New Testament, look around, and they're struggling with pride. That's important back, backdrop is to this church that's wrestling with pride and thinking that they're better than other Christians in the church, he says, here's the remedy, it's the gospel. And so he says, look around you, church. Not many of you are wise according to earthly standards. Not many are rich or strong. And that's because you weren't saved by being good or smart, but you're saved by grace, right? It sounds like an insult, kind of, and he's not insulting them. He's just saying, the reality is a lot of churches, most churches, are not made up of the most elite intellectually. They're not the richest. They're not, they don't have it all together. If we were saved by works, that's what it would probably be like, right? We would be seeing churches mostly full of the smartest of people of society, the people who could figure out the math the best, who could solve mysteries. That's what churches would be, would be full of. That's not what you see. So his big therefore is it must be that we're saved by grace. That's the first layer. So Perez was the unlikely one. And he's from a line of unlikely people who are, who are saved. The second is uh, Perez was, this is the bigger one, but the weirder one. Perez was the, quote, breaching one. This is why his name, his name means this. That's why his name Perez. He was the one that breached. His mom says, what a breach you've made for yourself. So breaching means uh, to break through or to break past or to fail to observe a law. Breaching means the failure to observe a standard. And so he was, of the two, the, the lawbreaker, meaning there is something very natural and ordered and predictable happening here, right? One baby started to come out, and you think, you know, in 99.999% of births, that baby comes out first, right? That's the natural order. That's like the law, so to speak. Of, of the moment. But Perez broke past that and broke it and broke around it and was born ahead of Zerah, even though Zerah was the oldest. So let me just pause here and say this. Uh, God really wants us to see this in the Bible. All right, some of you are seeing this for the first time, and that's great. But God wants us to see this pattern, the pattern being that the Bible is a tale of two things pairs juxtaposed to help tell a story by way of contrast. So whether it's two redeemers or sons or wives or two kings or two brothers, they represent two testaments or covenants or two ways of relating with God, one by works and human efforts and one by grace, God's effort coming down to us. We've already talked about this today in so many words. So again, we saw this last week with there being two types of redeemers representing two testaments as well, Boaz being um, one of them. But if you haven't noticed this pattern in the Bible, you will or you should. 
And the first of the two always represents the law uh, or human effort mediating God and people. And the second always represents the New Testament. And we see it play out in this story yet again as well. So in Genesis 38, whenever you see twins, you should say, huh, I wonder if they represent two testaments. When you see two kings or two um, types of priests or two women or things like that, you, you should, red flags or lights should go off in your brain and you should think, in the same way the Bible has two testaments. I wonder if that theme is here, and it probably, it probably is. But here it is as well. The idea is that Zerah, the one who tried to come out by the natural order of things, or you could say um, by the strength or works of his hands, his hands reached out first, uh, failed to truly come out. But Perez breached and broke past his brother. He didn't come out the natural way. He was born in a law-breaking way, a breaching way. And so Perez symbolizes how one day the lawful order would break. The Old Testament would wane. And the system of laws that temporarily mediated God and sinners but didn't work will be replaced. Andrew Wilson says this um, about this passage. He says, Jesus is a Perez rather than a Zerah. He does not have the obvious sign of royalty on his fist. He does not rise taller than any, anyone else, everyone else. He wasn't even born through the ordinary rising of human flesh, but only through the Lord who bursts forth the God of the breakthrough. Okay, so what I just said in those two things before, he brings up here in different words. He says, again, he's saying like Jesus is like Perez because he became low to die on a cross. It was the humbler of the two twins that Jesus came from. That, that's the one angle. But on the other angle, he says here uh, on that third line, he wasn't even born through, quote, the ordinary rising of human flesh, but only through the Lord. And that is to say that he, he, it was not through the works of the flesh or through power or doing or life underneath the law, but by grace. It was that line. He, Jesus came from the line of no work. He came from the line of break, going around the law. Jesus wasn't born through the Ten Commandments. He wasn't born through the notion of do this and then you will live. He was born around it. He circumvented that. Not blended with it. Like these two brothers are different people. They're not one and the same. Do you see? Just like the testaments of the Bible are not one and the same. They relate. They go together. They tell the one story. But they're not the same. Perez went around the law like Jesus went around it to save you. He's not your teacher. He's not a taskmaster. He's your savior who became like you to die for you, who willingly bled for you. That's what Perez means. He's a savior of the breach. He breached the Old Testament. He broke by it so that it would not be based on anything that we have to give him, but everything that he came to give us. Isn't that awesome? And so the, by way of conclusion here, this benediction of may your church be like, I put church here to make a point, but may your family be like the family of Perez, or may your church, may, may we as Christians be like the family of Perez. I think that's for all of us. It's such, so easy to read over this as an irrelevant 
dated thing. It's separate from us. That's just for this family. But there's not some spiritual lesson in it so much just because it was for the family. This is like gospel truth for all. Because to say, may your family be like that of Perez, is to say, may your family be like that of grace. May your family find blessing by the hand of God alone and not by the works of your hands. May you burst forth and rise up from the dead. May life come from the non-life in your heart. And also, this last piece, I think, and I have it here in the second part of this clause, um, may, when people look at you, may they think they shouldn't be saved, but they are. Kind of like Perez, right? Perez should not have been born first, but he was somehow. It's the same with us as Christians. We shouldn't be saved because we've done nothing to be saved. We don't deserve it. This is the grace idea, right? So I think like when you think of our church and think of your life, isn't that, isn't that like a, isn't that a wonderful prayer and like a benediction of sorts and a blessing to kind of pray over a church is, may, they, may Hiawatha be looked at as um, a people who are about Jesus, almost like entire, basically alone. Are we people of grace? Should we not, almost not even be here because we're almost even looking for him when he saved us? We don't deserve it, that's for sure. And so that, that's why I think as Christians, we are people of the breach. <clears throat> We're hard to categorize. Christians don't always fit neatly in boxes. Uh, you know, like, although we care deeply for social issues, we aren't defined primarily by our care for them, but by our care for the gospel. We're, our, our kingdom's not of this world because Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. Uh, this has been true since the early church. We, we aren't saved by natural order, because we're all messes and sinners. And so, so in that sense, churches don't always make sense, you know, church, the true churches, that is. True churches are full of very sinful people who are saved by grace and filled with God's Spirit, not having their own spirit reconditioned or polished, but full of God's Spirit. And, and we also aren't classified by extreme asceticism, right? Like, other religions a lot of times look a lot more religious than Christianity, that actually should make sense to us. We aren't beating ourselves to death with to-do lists, calls to prayer five times a day, pilgrimages, fasting, isolation, or Sabbath-keeping. Instead, we are those who have breached. We have broken the lawful order of things because God intended it. He, he saved us apart from it. We, we have become the least, not the greatest, but the least in order to enter God's kingdom. We have forsaken our strength, our trophies, our credentials, our works, and we've been saved undeservedly and, and reborn by his will, uh, not, not ours. And so, so again, this benediction in a way is, um, is a forerunning benediction for the church. May Hiawatha Church be like the family of Perez. Not Zerah, which would be to say uh, the people who with clenched fists... Um, try to birth ourselves and climb the ladder and ascend the mountain and solve all problems and uh, do it apart from God because we're strong and good and we deserve things. That would be to be people of Zerah. But to be people of Perez, people of the breach, people of grace, is to say, may we as a church always be known for preaching grace, living it out. Unfair grace. It's not fair that we're saved. So we have a category for 
It's, it's not a justice that we're saved. Christ experienced an injustice on the cross by dying for us so that we might be made righteous. The great exchange. So it's unfair, but it's beautiful. And it's dispensed freely by God to sinners like us forever. Let me pray that for us one more time here, guys, and we'll close with a, with a final song. <clears throat> Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this book. Um, these are difficult things, but beautiful. Man, thank you so much uh, for being the God of history, the God of theology, the God of genealogies, the God of gospel albums, the God of commemoration, the God of patterns, also the God of contrasts in the way that you contrast the works of our hands, which always fail, to the works of your hands, which always succeed. God, may we be a people and a church in the line of Perez, in the line of Ruth and Boaz, in the line of David, in the line of all the unbeautiful and unlikely and younger ones of salvation history who shouldn't have been first, who shouldn't have been the line, who shouldn't have been kings or saved or, or preferred, but they were. And the only explanation is it's by grace. It must be by grace. It must be by love. It must be because you became like a husband to us. You wedded us to yourself through your shed blood. That's the only answer. And so God, save us from our sins. Save us from ourselves. Save us from seeking to replace you with us. May we always be living out this story, not just a conversion, but always every day living out this story over and over again because it is our identity. It's who we are. It's our genealogy, spiritually speaking. It's our identity. It's in our blood now because you're in us now by your spirit. So remind us who we are and give us liberation and joy and peace in knowing that we're saved by grace, not by works. In Christ's name, amen.